It's a dangerous thing to put a 70-plus-year-old climbing stairs without a railing, just saying. Good morning, church. Um, I'd like to start off just by thanking uh, the members of this church for your partnership in the um, Christ Together Greater Austin. Uh, we cannot do this without churches like yours who have partnered with us for years and giving us your pastor to help furnish vision to the movement. Our goal to reach everyone in this region with the gospel of Jesus Christ is only achievable because of the partnerships that, that have been formed um, with churches like yours. So on behalf of the board and the other member churches of Christ Together Greater Austin, thank you for being pioneers in this effort. The other thing I would say is, Pastor Danny, we're praying for you today, brother. Get well, but don't get well too soon because we want you to rest. Really want you to take this time. Um, I know it's frustrating when God sits you down, uh, but sometimes you hear the, the greatest download of God's spirit and wisdom when you're in that position. So I'm praying this be a fruitful, a fruitful time for him. Um, last words are an interesting human study. Uh, we fortunately have a lot of documentation from some pretty famous people to know what they said at the moment of their death and uh, what was, uh, by what they said, we know what was on their mind um, when, they, when they spoke it. So I've got some up here on the screen for you. Frank Sinatra's famous last words were, I'm losing it. I guess he lost it his way, so to speak. Uh, Nostradamus, the great prognosticator, said, uh, tomorrow at sunrise I shall be here no longer. That was one prophecy he had that actually came, was, was fulfilled. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci, this, this one grabs me. I mean, this is a, a master artisan, craftsman, painter, sculptor, and he said, I've offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Wow. Sistine Chapel, ring a bell? Um, I mean, when you think about that, I've got a few others. Uh, Donald O'Connor, who was a, an actor, dancer, singer, back during the Bob Hope and uh, uh, Bing Crosby days, he said, on his deathbed, I'd like to thank the Academy for my Lifetime Achievement Award I will eventually get. <laughs> Which he still hasn't gotten, by the way, to, to this day. Uh, Groucho Marx, his last words were, this is no way to live. Thank you, Groucho. Uh, James Rogers was about to be shot by a firing squad in Utah, and his last words were, bring me a bulletproof vest. That's a practical man right there. And my own personal favorite, Joseph Henry Green, was a surgeon who was actually feeling his own pulse at the moment of his death, and he said, it stopped. And that was it. Now, those are famous last words of people, but uh, I'll put this in another context. How many of you have ever left your kids like at home alone for the first time and you gave them very specific instructions as you were going out the door? Those are pretty famous last words too. That's stuff like don't burn the house down, uh, don't tie your brother up again, um, you know, those kinds of things, those important life or death issues that you have to cover. So we, we've all been in the place of 
uttering words to somebody that we wanted them to remember. And that's exactly where we find ourselves today as we look at Acts chapter one, where Jesus is going to give some final words to his followers. And these words are not just like words he wants them to remember. These are also words that provide a course correction for the church early on. Now I was in the Navy and one of the things that I, that I remember from my Navy days was in order that we had to line up three points on the horizon to make sure the ship was steering straight. And if we got off of that a little bit down here, by the time we got to where we were going, we'd be miles away, uh, maybe hundreds of miles away from where we were supposed to go. So it's important that you get those words and that those, you get those course corrections and that you make them in a timely way. Otherwise, you end up being off course. And so these words are Jesus' final words, a course correction for his disciples and a course correction for those of us in the church today. So I just wanna read what it says here in Acts chapter one, starting with verse four. It says, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, as lovingly as he could, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by, my, by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. May God add his anointing to the reading of the word. Now you may be wondering why the church needed a correction, a course correction at that point in time, or why the church needs a course correction today. And I think there are three reasons why. Number one is because Jesus has entrusted the work of the kingdom to us. I want you to, I want you to nestle in that thought for just a second. The most important work that Jesus Christ had to accomplish was that of establishing the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. And he took that work and he gave it into the hands of failed, flawed human beings. By the way, how many of you know that when he did that, he knew the risk he was taking? He knew that this would not be a straight line journey from, from one point to another. This was gonna, there were gonna be a lot of zigging and zagging and mistakes that would be made along the way. If I were God, I would not do it this way. If I were God, I would not pick me to be his spokesperson. Like if I were God, I would not pick us to carry the enterprise of the kingdom forward, but we have that responsibility. And because we have that responsibility and because we are flawed human beings, we, pre we at times get off track. And so these words are meant to bring us back onto the right course. The second thing I would say is the church has long been confused about what this commission means. And I think our primary source of confusion is we often confuse the we and the me. Let me, let me tell you what I mean. Jesus uh, has just told these guys they're gonna get a powerful anointing and they're gonna be his witnesses. So how do they respond? 
Reading a little further in chapter one, you see that when the Lord gets taken up, these guys are standing around with their hands in their pockets looking up in the sky. He just told them, you're gonna be my witnesses, but instead of going and telling, they're standing and staring. That's a course, that's a course deviation. They're not gonna be able to reach the world standing and staring in the sky looking for Jesus to come back. And I will submit to you that over the history of the church, there have been times when we get way more focused about what, what's gonna get us into heaven than we are focused about bringing as many people into heaven with us as we can. Amen, that's good preaching, you keep it up, buddy. <laughs> so when they ask him, Lord, are, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom? They real, they, they're, they're exposing not only have they already failed, has their flaws already started to pollute the mission, not only are they kind of confusing, is this about me or is this about we? What is really the story here? But what they're saying is we want a physical kingdom. Look, for three and a half years has not Jesus spent his time trying to explain to these guys that he is not about restoring the kingdom of David, the Davidic kingdom on earth. He's not about conquering Romans. He's about conquering sin. He's not about conquering our adversary. He's about conquering our adversary, the evil one. And they're talking about, is this the time? Are you gonna start building thrones? Is this where we all get you know, our own little throne that we get to reign from? So the three things that the church needed was a course correction. The three things we need today is a course correction. Why? Because we're still flawed and we're still human. Why? Because we're still confused about how the me and the we work together. And I'm gonna explain that here in just a second. And thirdly, we're still preoccupied much with the physical aspects of the kingdom instead of with the spiritual ones. So into that mix, Jesus drops these words. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Everybody say power. power. Okay. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Everybody say witnesses with me. So if we wanna stay on course, we need to let these three points kind of line up for us. Here's what we have in these verses. We have a mission, we have a message, and we have the messengers. Now what do each one of those things mean? Number one, the mission. Our mission is to reach the world for Christ by any and all possible means. To reach the world for Christ by any and all possible means. Jesus didn't leave us to figure out what we we're supposed to do. This is not a fill in the blank, uh, complete your own story kind of thing. Jesus gave us not a program, not a strategy, but a spiritually empowered movement. This is a movement. And the movement starts in Jerusalem and moves to Judea and Samaria and the, uh, the ends of the earth. So it starts with me in my neighborhood. Everybody hold up a finger and put it in your chest. It starts with me. If you take me out of the equation, the we never happens. You with me on that? So this is, this is a movement that is spiritually empowered. We, can, we don't do this on our own. We do it in partnership with the Holy Spirit as God moves us. Secondly, it's a lifestyle movement. It's not a moment, it's a movement. It is a way we live. It's the primary lens through which we view the world. How many of you know it's really easy to view the world these days through a negative lens? And to see the world as our enemy. 
But there's some science here. If you're looking at an individual or a group of people as enemies, your brain will not allow you to see them as opportunities. Your brain will go, in, will go into fight or flight mode. So you're either going to argue with them or you're going to fight them or you're going to run away from them. You're not going to embrace them or approach them with the love of Jesus Christ. This is a spirit-inspired lifestyle movement that affects the way that we view everybody in the world. What is the church? The church is a spiritual movement that is number one, built on love. Would you agree? Jesus didn't say, by this shall all men know you're my disciples, that you have an opinion on how they should vote. He didn't say, by this shall all men know you're my disciples, that you have bumper stickers on your car that declare where you stand on every issue. He said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, that you have love. The, the, the characteristic, primary characteristic of the church of Jesus Christ is that we are a fellowship of love. I don't know about you, but I didn't come into the kingdom because somebody argued me into the kingdom 46 years ago. I came into the kingdom because someone loved me into the kingdom. They showed me the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ in a way that was irresistible. We are a movement that is built on love. We are a movement that is sustained with forgiveness. How many of you know that every relationship requires forgiveness in order to be sustained? You heard earlier, I've been married to my wife for 51 years. She has been practicing forgiveness faithfully <laughs> for that whole, and I give her lots of time to practice. I give her opportunities. I like to stretch her envelope for forgiveness, the capacity. It's great to see the grace. But the church should not only be characterized by love, it should be characterized as a place of forgiveness. A place where people can come and they know that no matter how badly they've messed up, if Jesus forgives them, so do we. No matter how far they've deviated off path, if, if, if Christ brings them back and embraces them and loves them and receives them as a prodigal, then we do the same. We're not gonna be the older brother lagging behind. Built on love, sustained with forgiveness and demonstrated by compassion. Demonstrated by compassion, by acts of compassion. So the first point to correct our course is recognize that we have this mission to reach the world through those means in order to draw them into relationship with Jesus Christ. The second thing is our message. And our message is that we are to be witnesses. Can you say that word with me, witnesses? When Jesus chose the word to describe our message, he chose one that's pregnant with meaning. And that word is witness, or the original word that he used was the word from which we get the word martyr. Being a witness means, first of all, that we give testimony to something we have experienced personally. I can argue with your theology. I can argue with your view of scripture, but it's very hard for me to argue with your experience. You know, you remember what the blind man said when they asked him, who healed you? He said, all I know is once I was blind, but now I see. Like, you wanna argue with that? That's a rainbow. I've never seen one before. There's one. That's a camel. You're ugly. You know, whatever. 
But there, there, you could not argue with the man's experience. He, he had a genuine experience with Jesus Christ. And that's what we are to be primarily. I, I've been around in Christian circles long enough to have been through a number of, quote, campaigns or experiences where we were given phrases to use and then go out and uh, I used to call it the tackle and tell a method of evangelism. Like, I'm gonna run you down and I'm gonna share these truths with you. And what I found over the years was all of those things, as well thought out as they were, as well planned out, they were never as effective as somebody standing up and saying, let me tell you what I experienced. Let me tell you how Jesus set me free. I told you I came to Christ now 47 years ago, but it was a journey to get to Christ. And when I was a young man in between graduating from high school and and going in the military, I was injured. And it was a severe enough injury that they were talking about amputation. So I was in the hospital not knowing if I was gonna have a wake up from my surgery and have, you know, a a part of one of my limbs not not there anymore. And the phone rang next to my bed. And on the phone was a lady named B. B was in her 60s. B was suffering from end-stage breast cancer. In those days, very painful and not many source, not many um, resources in terms of treatment. But she was on the phone with one message, and that was to tell me, "I'm praying for you." And I believe when you come out of surgery, you're going to have everything that you went into surgery with. I can't tell you, I did not believe in, in Jesus at that point, but the love of that woman, that dying, she would take it as a priority to reach out to this person, left a message on my heart that I could not escape. And whenever I would think about you know, the standard arguments against the church about how hypocritical the church is and what's wrong with the church, that face would be staring at me and I'd go, but she's not like that. She's not like that. And I'm in the kingdom today because of B. And any person that over the course of my ministry ever came to accept Jesus Christ as their personal savior, ever came to get their marriage healed or ever came to, to, to have a, a dramatic transfer, transformation where they were set free from their addiction, every single one of those victories is resting on B's shoulders. You understand what I'm saying? The importance of owning my personal experience with Jesus Christ. Being a witness, a personal, having a personal experience with Jesus was the number one requirement that the disciples had for filling the position that was left by Judas when they said it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time, the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness of his resurrection. They understand or understood that the mission requires a personal experience. Second thing being a witness means is reporting or confirming something that is true. I'm, I'm bugged, I'm, I'm, I'm miffed, I'm mystified that people today talk about my truth and your truth. 
You with me? It's like, I get it, your opinion, if you wanna put the word opinion there, I'm, I'm, I'm with you all day long. You have an opinion, I have an opinion. But if you're talking about truth, there's one truth. And when I bear witness to Jesus Christ, I'm not bearing witness to my truth. I'm not bearing witness to my religious perspective. We've been raised in an atmosphere to believe that all of us are on different highways heading for the same direction. That's true for most of the highways. They do go in the same direction. There's one highway that goes in the right direction. But I'm here to bear witness to the truth. The truth is a person. The truth is someone who took on the form of a human being for 33 and a half years, lived on the planet, opened up his veins dying on a cross, was buried in a tomb and rose again on the third day to set us free from sin and hell and death. So we confirm that truth. We have, we've met the truth. We, we talked to him this morning, hopefully. We sang to him in worship. We are here to bear witness, to be bearers of the truth. The third thing is being a witness means to speak favorably about something. In the world we live in, Jesus is not on the high order of favorableness. His name is used on golf courses with less worship and more, more, <clears throat> more profanity. It is incredible how much Jesus, the reputation of Christ has eroded and been allowed to erode over time. We are here to speak favorably about him. We're, 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 here not to, we're here to tell you we know Jesus. Remember that old debate when uh, John Kennedy was uh, debating for president and, or, or no, I'm sorry, it was later on uh, when somebody made reference to John Kennedy in a presidential debate and the person who was debating was older and said, I knew President Kennedy and you, sir, are no Kennedy. Uh, there are lots of people who are out there pointing, pointing fingers and poking holes at Jesus who don't know Jesus. And we are here to represent him and tell about the positive light of Jesus Christ, who he is, how much he loves us, how much compassion and grace he has over us. Finally, being a witness means to provide an attestation or proof to Christ through the way that we live even to the point of death, if necessary. Let me ask you a question. If you know the history of the Black Plague in the Middle Ages, you will know that Christians went to houses where people were sick and they bathed the sick, they wrapped them in bandages, they comforted them at the last moments of their lives, and they also offered to bury the dead. Now, this was in the middle of a plague that was killing hundreds of thousands of people. And the people that were out front saying, we are going to follow Christ no matter the cost. That was the church of Jesus Christ. Now, drop that into what's been our testimony for the last two and a half years. Just saying, has, have, has something changed? Because I don't think the mission changed. I, I don't think the message changed. I, I think this is where we start getting into confusion about the me and the we. 
It's like, what have you given us to do? I read in the book of Revelation, it says, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. What's the worst thing you can do to me? Kill me? Hey, last time I read, that's one of the most merciful things you could do because then my fight's over. People laid down their lives. We are his witnesses by the lives that we live and by the deaths that we die. Now, not many of us may have been called to lay down our physical life, our heartbeats, but have we been called to lay down our convenience? Have we been called to surrender our comfort zone in order to take ownership for that piece of the world that God has called us to? Hold on to that point. So we have the first two points of our alignment now. We know what our mission is, we know what our message is. The third point is who are the messengers? And by that, I would put the church. I'd fill the church in, in, in that blank. What do I mean by that? Well, the church is a collection. There's the big C church, the body of Christ. There's the little C church, the local congregation. But all of those exist because they're made up of individuals. So when we talk about the mission and we talk about the message and we talk about the messengers, we're talking about each one of us individually and those of us collectively. Now, what does that mean? Individually, it means God puts me in a place and gives me influence over people in that place. If you're in school, there are people you're in school with that they are now in your sphere of influence, just like I was in B's sphere of influence. In your neighborhood, there are people that, that live around you that are within your sphere of influence, your circle of influence. Those are the people that God wants you to reach. So often what we do is we say, okay, well, I get the message, I get the mission, we're gonna fund a missionary and they're gonna go and carry the message. Funding the missionary is great, we should do that. But you're the missionary for your neighborhood. Amen, keep it up, buddy. You and I, I'm the missionary for my neighborhood. I'm the missionary for my, the, my neighbors. Those are the people that I should have some knowledge of and some access to and should care about. So the two things that this means as the church is each individual church member assuming that level of responsibility for their own immediate environment and each church collectively with other churches in their given circle of accountability, assuming responsibility for reaching the lost in that area where that church is located. Now, where did you come up with this as I bring this to a close? Paul in the 17th chapter of the book of Acts is speaking to the Athenians. And he tells them, the God who made the world and everything in it is not served by human hands. For from one human being, he made the whole race of human beings. And listen to this part. 
and determined the exact times and places where they should live. Determine the exact times and places where they should live. Why do you live where you live? Well, I saw the house and I liked it. Yeah, I think somebody else gave you an appetite for that house because they wanted to plant you there because they knew the neighbors, they knew the lives of the people that live around you. They knew the crises that those people would be facing and you are God's emissary, ambassador, witness in that neighborhood. God determined the exact times and places that men should live so that all men would reach out to him, although he is not far from any of us. Wow. You're saying that, my, that I've got a responsibility for my neighborhood? I'll invite Pastor Danny to come over and reach my neighbors. That's a good idea. Nobody can reach your neighbors like you can. And none of this, we will not, you know, that Christ together vision of giving multiple opportunities to every man, woman, and student in the greater Austin region to hear, respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that will never happen unless each one of us owns our responsibility. Now, what happens is when we first get saved, we tell everybody. We'll tell you whether you wanna know or not. But what happens over time, we see an attenuation of that excitement and enthusiasm and motivation. And so what we have after 30 or 40 years of being a Christian, unless there's some real intentionality there, you probably won most of the people to Christ that you were gonna influence to Christ in those first five years or so of being a, it shouldn't be that way. The longer you walk with Christ, the closer you get to him, the more fire should be in your belly for sharing who he is. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you realize how much other people need him. So what is our, what's our mission, our, our message, our purpose? We have three courses to guide our way, or four points I wanna make. Number one, Remember that God has placed you where you live, work, and go to school. Look around you and see how God has literally brought the ends of the earth into your Jerusalem. My neighborhood looks like the United Nations. It really does. There, there are more people from India and Pakistan um, and Asian countries that live in my neighborhood than there are people that, were, that are um, look like me, which means it's a great opportunity. God brought the ends of the earth to us for our influence. God has raised up congregations like this one to address the specific areas of the community. And if all the individuals in a given area do their part, and if the churches will come together in a given area to do their part, then we will be able to carry out the mission that Jesus Christ gave us to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. My challenge to you is to think, who am I missing? 
Who's, who's my Rick Randall that I need to reach out to that maybe my conversation will push that needle, will move that person to make a decision for Christ? There is one for everyone. God bless you.